You are listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Trevelli and co-host Jessica Strang. If you ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer a Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you wanted to know about therapy before you make your first appointment. Adam Honecker is a licensed clinical social worker and is the director of adolescent programs at Compass Health Center in Chicago. Adam helps to oversee the PHP and IOP programs, which focus on treating adolescents with mood and anxiety disorders. Compass PHP and IOP programs address issues including school refusal, OCD, and complex anxiety, substance use concerns, and trauma. Adam has been in the field for 13 years, and his past experience includes treatment focus in child and adolescents with trauma, as well as adolescents and adults with co-occurring substance use and mental health disorders. We are so thrilled to have Adam on the podcast today to discuss what PHP and IOP is all about. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And, and you might have noticed um, I'm alone. I'm solo today. Jennifer is not going to be able to be with us, but I'll be interviewing you today. So thank you so much for doing this. And um, I know that in the intro, I've talked a little bit about what you do, and what, but we'll get into that. But let's just start from the beginning. I like to ask all guests that are coming on to our show, um, what made you start studying psychology? What was those early experiences like that made you think this is a good idea? Oh, man, uh, I would say probably like a lot of people was kind of uh, like a windy path. I, I certainly don't think when I was, you know, entering college, I thought I would be in mental health. I always knew I was going to do something that kind of was, um, you know, helping people in some way. Both my parents were school teachers and was raised in a pretty liberal, like you got to help out people environment. And mm -hmm. I was a undergrad in uh, sociology and I did a minor in conflict analysis. And ultimately throughout uh, my undergrad, I kind of slowly realized, and then with the help of my uh, uh, professor, sociology was going to be a hard degree to do much with, um, mm -hmm. kind of in practical application. Um, but ultimately kind of what got me working towards social work or mental health was I, I was interning in a uh, medium security prison uh, for a sociology program, um, really with the like, plan of just observing the institution and that sort of thing. But basically, while I was there, I uh, found myself working with inmates, uh, getting ready to leave and develop like a reentry, half a program to help guys getting ready to, um, you know, get back to, to their homes. And was kind of describing the process to my advisor at the time. And he was like, dude, you're doing social work. Uh, I think you should probably... <laughs> get a master's in social work. So that's kind of where I went because I, I got real into it and found myself really kind of charged up by it. And I think my original intentions were a lot more like macro level and help society at large and got a little disenchanted. That didn't seem super easy to do, but helping individuals seemed pretty cool. So ultimately found my way in a social work school and then kind of proceeded from there. That's amazing. I mean, that's, I mean, talk about going in like head first, right? right? Because I think that like I often think about working 
in, you know, institutions and correctional facilities is very difficult work. It's rewarding mm-hmm. work. It's wonderful work. It's needed work. But I remember thinking, even as an intern, that's really difficult. Um, I Personality wise, it was just, you know, it has to be the right fit. And that's amazing that you were able to go there head first and then figure out after, okay, this is a good idea, right? Yeah. I mean, I started it also because there was like a girl I had a crush on who was doing it and thought it would be cool to do it at the same time <laughs> as her. So it's like, yeah, yeah. All right. That seems like a good thing. Um, but yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Dated her for a while too. So, uh, you know, it did work. It was, it was honestly like, I really did enjoy that. And, and for a while I thought I was going to end up doing, uh, corrections work for a long time. And then, wow. um, okay. you know, internships in college just landed me, uh, smack dab with adolescents and, um, adults struggling with, uh, mental illness and uh, substance use. I was in co-occurring, uh, centers for both, uh, internships in college. And then, kind of proceeded from there. Okay, amazing. And what do you currently do? I know that I uh, said it in the intro, but what can you tell people that maybe forgot already, and the listeners, what, what is your current position? Yeah, current position. So I'm the uh, program director for um, the adolescent program at Compass Health Center, which is a partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient program in Chicago. So I do hands-on clinical work with patients and then uh, oversee a team and program uh, delivering treatment to adolescents, really with a focus on mood and anxiety disorders. Okay, wonderful. And then you said, kind of, you mentioned briefly that during your internships, is that when you started working with children and adolescents? Yeah, yeah. My first year uh, internship, I was primarily with adults um, in a residential treatment facility for folks. I was on the East Coast uh, in Maryland and um, working with folks coming from uh, typically Baltimore and then kind of relocating to the East Coast. Uh, so detoxing off of uh, opiates and cocaine were the kind of primary drugs of choice. And then um, mm-hmm. most folks with with pretty severe mental illness. So I was like doing group therapy and individual work with folks with co-occurring disorders and then um, kind of fell in love with that population. And then so stuck around and joined their uh, IOP in uh, individual practice in, in the same area for the adolescent population. Okay. And that's kind of how it all began for you, working at IOP and PHP at that, pro- at that point? S- sort of, yeah. I, I went from that to, I did about five years at a place called Kennedy Krieger in Baltimore that was a really primarily a trauma-focused uh, outpatient clinic, really just working with children and adolescents, doing primarily a trauma-focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy um, and other uh, individual work and family work with uh, kids in uh, foster care, primarily, wow. and kids with uh, pretty severe trauma histories. So and that was my difficult. first... That's pretty difficult work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially early on, it definitely had that. Uh, I think people often say, like, what's the hardest part of your job? And, and kind of taking that stuff home with me early on, that was it. Um, mm-hmm. But it was mm-hmm. also super rewarding. And I, I just found myself really, really connecting and gravitating towards especially teenagers. I just found myself that was kind of like my niche and where I felt most comfortable and I think hopefully most effective. No, I think that's wonderful. I actually happened to study also child and adolescent psychology, and that was my um, my track when I was in in grad school. And I just mm-hmm. I love teenagers. There's just something they're so fun, and they keep you young and on your toes. Yeah. And I'm always figuring out the lingo, and I'm I'm also testing it on my own children. And so they're always like, "You don't know what you're talking about." But my adolescent clients seem to think I'm. It, I get it. I, you know, it's, but it's interesting. It's a very very interesting population to work with. Um, yeah. And then yeah. I feel like you have to like it. I feel like anytime I do an interview, that's one of the first questions I ask folks looking for a job is like, tell me why you like teenagers. Cause you need to, if you're going to work with them, it can't be something you're kind of like half invested in because they are a uh, acquired taste. 
Oh, and on top of that, they can suss you out. You know, they, yeah. they know they know when you're not being real. They know when you're being fake. They know when you're just. And so you have to really be on your toes with teenagers. Most definitely. Um, so, you know, we've been tossing out these terms a little bit, but mm-hmm. just for people that don't know, can we break down um, two things? One is what is IOP and PHP? And then in that realm, I always think of the way I describe it to people, but I want to hear how you describe it, mm-hmm. like how that spectrum of services for people for mental health services, where you would pick <clears> that. So um, let's just start off with what is IOP and PHP that we're talking about here? Yeah, IOP and PHP, and, and unfortunately, a lot of what we do involves speaking acronyms because the treatment we involve is also acronym-based, but PHP stands for uh, partial hospitalization, and then IOP is intensive outpatient. Um, and typically, if I'm talking to a prospective patient or parent, I do like to kind of go through that continuum, as you said. Um, mm-hmm. So if your first introduction to therapy at all, typically you're talking about outpatient therapy. So seeing somebody for you know 45 minutes to an hour once a week, typically... Um, and occasionally you can escalate from there for, for a couple sessions a week. And then um, often kind of the next step up from that, if, if more services are needed, you're often looking at intensive outpatient. And that can look like a lot of different things depending on the population and the age you're serving. But really you're looking at mul- multiple hours of, of you know, therapy per week, often in a group setting with lots of other supplemental supports. Um, so for okay. us, it's primarily group therapy for adolescents, but you have an individual therapist and a family therapist and you see a psychiatrist. Um, and in the adolescent population, at least, it's often but not always um, a program that happens after school. Mm-hmm. So services for kids who are, are kind of functional and safe in their daily life at school, but who need an extra layer of support. Um, so coming to us uh, or a program like ours a few days a week after school or sometimes every single day. Okay. And that would be the IOP program, like you said, functional, mm-hmm. safe, uh, kids that need additional supports and they need a higher level of care than just seeing, let's say for me, I'm a private practice therapist, you know, um, but it would be an a, additional support. Mm-hmm. And then what would then be PHP? Um, what would that look so like? And what does that acronym, I know you said it, partial hospitalization. Yeah, partial hospitalization. So I always try to emphasize it is truly partial. You're not looking at uh, you know, sleeping over anywhere. There's no beds, you know, PHPs are closed on the weekend, um, but typically you're looking at, you know, roughly school hours. So for us, it's nine to three, Monday through Friday. And um, instead of going to school for a short period of time, uh, patients will come and reserve really com- or uh, receive really comprehensive therapeutic supports, typically for two to three weeks. Um, when functioning is kind of impaired, it gets discussed. And then oftentimes when safety starts to become something that's compromised on a more regular basis. Um, so, so historically, you know, PHPs were looked at as a way to divert inpatient hospitalization, but plenty mm-hmm. of the time too, just when you're seeing a kid, you know, not getting to school or struggling to get through classes or really just not functioning in daily life, PHP can be useful to uh, kind of get back to that place of stability. Um, mm-hmm. Really, the, the whole primary function is short-term stability. I, I often try to tell folks coming into the program that, you know, we can't promise much, but I can promise you're going to leave with stuff to deal with. Um, and really what you're looking at is, is getting back to hopefully a, a baseline or a place of functioning and safety. And I've seen a lot of um, a lot of studies after doing IOP programs and PHP programs that people do find them to be quite successful and quite helpful, you know, to get back to a normal baseline of functioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes folks return, you know, we, we like to see mm-hmm. return rates not that high. Um, but, you know, I think with appropriate ongoing care with folks like yourself, which is a huge priority, 
Um, plenty of people do exactly that. You know, it's meant to be a, a flip on the radar and an ability to, uh, you know, kind of take some time to gain some skills and, and really some means of managing daily life and then get, get back to what you were doing. Okay. And so what are some of the top reasons somebody would come to IOP or PHP? And you said PHP two or three weeks, right? I forgot. What was IOP? Like what's the length of, of, of stay for someone doing those um, after school hours or, you know, those, those shortened visits? What, how long does that usually last for folks? I mean, therapists like to say it varies or it depends a lot. And I'm saying the same thing, but you know, usually mm-hmm. for IOP, you see about six weeks or so if you're going into it straight ahead. So if you're somebody who comes in for a, an assessment and it's recommended that you do IOP straight away, you're often looking at about six weeks or so if, if you're coming multiple days per week. Um, and, and though that's, that's not always the recommendation, plenty of the time we're seeing folks come in at the, the PHP level for two to three weeks and then they gradually kind of reintegrate back to the school environment if you're an adolescent, and then indeed also follow up in the after-school IOP um, for for a period of weeks as well. Um, I typically kind of would estimate end-to-end if you're doing that process, about two months Mm -hmm. in this level of intensive treatment before graduating back to outpatient treatment. Okay, okay, and so let let me me talk to you you about this because I feel like this is the part that I, I, I feel it was the most most important reason why I wanted to speak with you today was that, you know, I've had to hospitalize people during Mm -hmm. crisis, you know, so it's been like, you know, 911, you know, go to the ER, get an evaluation, get hospitalized. That's not the work that you're doing, but you know, then eventually they've, they've transitioned to, but for people that are listening, this whole process sounds incredibly intense and frightening Mm -hmm. and not, you know, and of course having, maybe not the best examples in movies and television of what this looks like. So, yeah. you know, I, I think I see more of like residential type of things or hospitalization mm-hmm. um, versus IOP and PHP. Can you walk me through, like, I'm calling you, I'm calling Compass. Okay. And I've got a child, a teenager child with an issue. What is that process from, for IOP um, from phone call to mm-hmm. completion uh, versus PHP, let's say, for example, like what would somebody expect, you know, when they're, when they're calling and, and do they just call, I guess, uh, so many questions, Dan, I'm sorry, I'm throwing at you. Yeah, what no, is, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, no, you're, yeah, let's start off that way. And then I will, I will pepper with more questions. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just give you the, the very typical case, which you started with okay. a, a parent being super overwhelmed, which is exactly right. I think most parents are, you know, petrified and odds are have already kind of gone through a lot of hell, you know, to get to this point, they've, they've had mm-hmm. difficulty with their kid in therapy and they've seen, you know, their child struggling and they're trying to figure out what's right. Um, so, you know, calling and then, you know, get the number through the website or, or you know, uh, you know, however else often uh, therapists or, you know, somebody from a, a hospital or a school might recommend a place like Compass or PHP or IOP. And, you know, our process is, you know, you call and then we have a, a team of folks who, ask some kind of pre-assessment uh, questions to make sure that some of the basics are kind of uh, answered so that we're sure we're likely the right fit. We want to kind of uh, mitigate the the risk of, you know, a, a child having a concern that we don't touch upon in a meaningful way. For instance, Compass mm-hmm. doesn't treat uh, patients with eating disorders. So mm-hmm. if somebody was calling and that was an issue, we would be giving referrals elsewhere. So we're not, you know, wasting your time when you're already struggling with so much um, coming in. So, you know, answering some basic questions and then often um, getting scheduled for what we call an intake assessment, but um, really it's an hour long psychosocial evaluation with uh, a licensed clinician who is uh, really evaluating 
major concerns with mood and anxiety, uh, you know, kind of everything that's going on in terms of the reasons that bring you there, um, getting a sense of the patient and the, uh, the, the parent's per perspective goals, and then really just evaluating kind of what the need is. Um, typically before all the, you know, clinical questions start, we also like to lay a foundation of exactly what PHP and IOP might be too. Um, because we see many people coming in with with not much awareness at all. You know, plenty of parents, I think, understand and have heard before because they've done the research. But we mm -hmm. see plenty of folks who this is their very first foray into mental health treatment. So kind of needing to break it down and explain, you know, what is group therapy, family therapy, all that. Um, so outlining all that, going through the evaluation and then um, typically leaving it with a recommendation. Uh, my process mm -hmm. is to kind of get a little bit of time with the patient alone, same deal with the parents, and then come together to kind of outline a recommendation. And then families leave um, kind of deciding whether or not that's that's something they're they're going to follow through on. Um, rarely, you know, we sort of have to force the use of a recommendation if we feel like, you know, risk is, is very, very severe. It's pretty rare that we'd hospitalize somebody at that stage. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, often we're saying, you know, our, our idea here is you either start partial hospitalization, you know, let's talk about how to how to have your child be out of school for a little while, or do we think they're doing okay enough at school and, and safety is not a big worry that we can see them in the uh, after school IOP. Um, so really we make the recommendation and then as long as the family is on board, they let us know and, and we typically prepare to see them uh, join the program the very next day. Okay. So it's pretty quick turnover then, like at the, mm -hmm. at the point of like, you know, interviewing and then, and then I guess the other piece too, is that now this sounds, I, I kind of maybe know the answer, but how invested are, I mean, the families might be very invested. They're probably so overwhelmed and maybe, maybe not, but children and adolescents, you know, this is also frightening for them in a totally different way. You know, what's going on with them, A, emotionally, but also then, you know, now they're going into this program how much resistance do you see um, with with kids and adolescents coming into programming? So, I mean, it, not a ton of resistance typically. I think plenty of uh, questions and skepticism sometimes, and especially, you know, fairly enough from parents too. I think one of the bigger questions I get is, you know, how does leaving school for a while help my kid get back to school? Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's plenty of concern, especially for for parents who, you know, their kids in a in a, you know, academically rigorous school, which most schools are, it, it can feel pretty scary to picture your kid, you know, missing instruction for two to three weeks. Um, so kind of we try to mitigate those concerns. And for us, partially that's done by, you know, making them aware. And, and this is true of most PHPs. I think there's educational staff typically that coordinate with schools to, to, to mitigate the, the risk of uh, academic decline. And then we have time dedicated to academics in the program as well. And then um, for kids, as long as they're not actually needing to be kind of drug in, kicking and screaming. Typically, I, I think they have some general buy-in um, coming in the door for us, at least. In, in our program, there has to be some like acceptance and willingness to come in. It's a voluntary program. Um, mm -hmm. But usually the hope is there's a skilled clinician who kind of explains to them the, the value. Um, and then often, but not always, I, I think they've been through enough struggle already. We, we see plenty of kids coming in kind of interested or at least open to the idea already. And maybe wanting that support, wanting, to, you know, at that point, something to help, to help however they're feeling, right? Yes, exactly. And so, so when, when someone's in, let's say, like a PHP programming, is there ever a time where, like, maybe they start off in IOP and then things worsen? Or would you make a choice to, you know, put them into a higher level of care like PHP? Does that, 
is that just a constant, uh, is that something you do or is that something that you evaluate on a day-to-day -day basis? Sorry, say that again. I lost you for just a second. Apologies. Oh, sure, sure. No, is there, is there a way that, that maybe there's like um, a process where maybe somebody's starting an IOP and then you realize, oh, well, I think they really need to go to PHP. Oh, is that something yeah, that's yeah. typical that happens? It's it's not what we hope. I mean, there are there are times when um, folks I like are borderline uh, meeting criteria for either, and then I, I typically hope to set the stage for that possibility at that point. So if we're assessing and we say, okay, you know, right now, if your needs are suggesting IAP and that's kind of what you're open to, you know, we can support that. But if if symptoms escalate, we can always increase to to PHP, and it does happen. It's not mm -hmm. the 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 most common thing, but it's certainly possible. And then we make space for that um, deliberately. So especially plenty of time, I'd say kids with like really strong anxiety and, you know, real strong desire to be in school. But then we see that anxiety ramping up and just like being in school gets to be an impossibility. Often that's when we're kind of like, okay, we got to kind of say uncle here and then step up to PHP for a bit, but it's definitely, definitely on the table. And so as, as you type, you know, we're walking us through what IOP and PHP look like. Um, so, you know, that you said interview first mm -hmm. with the family and the child or a teen, and then the next day you'd start programming, whether it's IOP or PHP. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about those, those groups, those process groups. I haven't done groups in like a million years, so I'm sure yeah. that they're much different, you know, but like, what are those, what is a group setting? Like, what do you, what do you do there? You know, what do you yeah, do so in the whole... therapy? The whole thing is, I mean, for, for a parent and then the kid, it's kind of like getting dropped off to school, really. So, you know, it's it's not, you know, most PHPs are not in a hospital setting so or a hospital-like setting. You're coming into a, you know, ours is an office complex, and it, it kind of looks like a school inside, and you're coming in with your backpack. And um, kind of the structure of the day is that you're with a cohort of folks your age. So really for us, it's, you know, 14 through 18, mm -hmm. um, but high school age kids. And we usually have groups of about 12 or 13, a couple group therapists who are master's level clinicians, so typically social workers or counselors. Um, and the first step of the day is always going to be um, turn your cell phone in, put your backpack in a, in a locker and kind of get settled in for the day. And the first group we always do is called check-in. It's really an opportunity for group members to kind of debrief on their mood. Um, we establish a mood rating system similar to what you use in the hospitals for a pain scale. So zero mm -hmm. through 10 Zero is like totally fine. Ten's crisis level. I'm as depressed or as anxious as I could be or as overwhelmed as I could be. Um, and we have group members do the very stereotypical group thing and be in a circle and kind of say that out loud and kind of check in on their mood. Typically, we identify current struggles, any, any kind of goals for the day. We typically have patients uh, name their goals out loud so that other okay. group members are aware of their goals as well so they can kind of keep each other accountable a bit. And then typically there's some sort of a kind of icebreaker or kind of fun activity just to get kids moving in the morning and talking. And then um, our process is also to give them an anonymous space, uh, well, anonymous for other group members, but a, a confidential space for them to write down any other concerns that they might want to share with folks working with them. Um, but really just kind of taking their emotional temperature for the day, getting a sense of any big concerns. And then um, that information is shared out with the rest of the treatment team. And then um, our process is after that, the second group is really two hours of what we call supervised study. I think each PHP kind of runs a little bit different with this, but mm -hmm. I would say kind of imagine a, a therapeutic study hall. Kids are working independently, but with uh, teachers on staff uh, guiding them through whatever work they might need to be doing while they're out of school. So plenty of time we're um, getting immediate work sent from you know schools, school counselor, whatever else, and kids will be kind of working on work that's possible to do while they're not receiving direct instruction. 
And for us, mm -hmm. plenty of our kids are kind of coming in with the, you know, a backlog of work already, depending on if they've had some school anxiety or struggle to get academic work done already. Um, but effectively, they're, they're working at their own pace with some, some instructional support to get their academics taken care of for a couple hours. Um, and in that period, too, they may meet with a psychiatrist um, or a family therapist or their individual therapist and program, too. Um, but in a classroom setting, kind of knocking out that academic piece. Okay. Um, there's always little breaks throughout the day. I don't need to get into that, but, you know, a chance for kids to use the bathroom and that sort of thing. And then yeah. um, the kind of three most, uh, you know, important kind of therapeutic components of the day are process group, skill group, and then we do experiential therapy. Process group is uh, what comes next for us. And it's like exactly what you see in movies when you see group therapy, it's people in a circle. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's really, uh, you know, adolescents hopefully giving each other feedback not a lot of advice and mm -hmm. reflecting on you know current struggles family issues how they're integrating skills into whatever process they're in and then just really helping support each other and then you know just as importantly kind of recognizing each other in themselves you know we see a lot of kids thinking yeah. that it's it's only them going through this stuff or they're the only ones who have these kind of you know thoughts and then they're sitting next to a kid who's saying something very similar um, mm -hmm. and really helping each other in that process. And then the group therapist job is really just to kind of keep the uh, conversation appropriate, moving and, and treatment focused, but hopefully it's mostly the kids talking. And I would say many, many, many kids love it. And there's a good handful of kids that's like their worst nightmare because it's just a lot of oh, sitting yeah. in vulnerability and it's a lot of spotlight on them. <clears throat> so right, right. Um, it's, it's, it's heavy. And usually it takes a few days to warm up to that process too, if you're new to the program. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can imagine. So, I mean, I, I, that that was my favorite, by the way, process group when I was in when I was doing my postdoc and, and and internship. It's amazing. It's amazing how insightful. And again, you know, it goes back to working with a spe specific population. You have to love them. Mm -hmm. um, adolescents are so insightful, so in incredible, so thoughtful, and also, you know, I, I'm sure very negative things too at times. You know what I mean? But when you're in process group, uh, I just you see such a vulnerable, unbelievable side to to these young people it's just amazing and so that's great that your your population enjoys process groups yeah yeah for sure most of them yeah i think and um we actually hear plenty of kids that's what they would prefer to do like all the time and it's yeah. not only effective we have to teach some skills and then that's sort of what comes next uh okay after so what is yeah kids. what is skills yeah what tell me more about that yeah so skills is is like the building block of most phps certainly ours it's where practical, pragmatic coping skills are taught. I, I think a lot of kids come into treatment saying they need coping skills, but then struggle to kind of name what that means. And, and for mm -hmm. us, it's really, how do you, you know, manage your emotions a bit more effectively and tolerate distress and, you know, not engage in behaviors that make yourself unsafe or, or make your situation worse? And how do you, you know, communicate more effectively your needs and set boundaries or ask for help appropriately? And, challenge on helpful thoughts and behaviors and then kind of tweak the patterns you're kind of currently in. Um, so really practically speaking, you know, teaching a skill for us, that's, that's again, led by our group therapists, um, teaching a, a, I, would you like them to talk through like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical yeah, behavioral just therapy if a little you want bit? To, yeah, please. I mean, I feel like, you know, this is all new to a lot of people to hear this. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know this because I've, I've sent people to different PHP programs, right? Yeah. But I think a lot of people don't have zero idea what's happening you know so yeah what what kind of what modalities do you offer like what kind of therapeutic modalities do you offer for skills and do you want to start with cbt or 
Is that like what yeah, yeah, I can talk to okay, pretty much, yeah. So I mean, I think broadly speaking, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, or DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, are the two primary modalities we use. We might pepper in some other techniques occasionally, but really, those are the building blocks. And mm -hmm. uh, CBT is looking at your thoughts and behaviors and how they influence each other, and you know, the core belief being those are the two things you can kind of challenge a little bit, right? You can not like will yourself out of an emotional state. You have to kind of look at your thoughts. And how do you how do you address those? And, and can you make some behavior changes as well? And then um, DBT similarly was born out of, out of cognitive behavioral therapy and looks at tolerating distressing emotions, managing and uh, regulating those emotions more effectively, being more mindful and then uh, communicating or we call it interpersonal effectiveness, but, you know, more effective communication. Um, and effectively what our, our group therapists do is build a uh, kind of lesson plan for the week ahead of time based on the milieu we have and we anticipate the skills that make most sense. Uh, we have a whole, you know, dozens and dozens of skills that we teach that are meant to target these different areas. And then, um, you know, patients sit in a, in a room and learn a strategy, whether it be, you know, a, a thought challenging technique or, you know, a communication technique. And, and the hope is they're taught it in, in, in kind of a, a core concept way and then given a mm -hmm. chance to, to practice it as well. Um, so we'll have kids who, you know, for instance, uh, struggle with social anxiety and, and we'll kind of talk through that and some of the ways people with social anxiety sometimes uh, manage that by, you know, engaging in, we'll call them safety behaviors, whether it's, you know, looking at the floor when you're talking to somebody or, or what have you. So the group therapist will kind of talk that through and then have kids forcing each other to stare each other in the eyes for a couple minutes and, you know, kind of mm -hmm. building that muscle of practicing things that are a little bit different for them. Um, so, you know, kids learn these techniques and then, uh, kind of practice them and then get a chance to find a way to reflect on how it might be useful in their particular concerns. Most of these ideas are meant to be pretty, you know, broad based and, and meet the needs of most folks coming in with, with depression or anxiety, but how do you kind of apply it to yourself in your personal situation? So the hope is kids kind of get a few minutes to, to fill out a worksheet and have something to take with them when they leave too, so that they have something to kind of remember what they were taught. So things that they can use, like when they're when they're when they're outside of the the just outside of the IOP programming, something that can be consistent. Like I've got this now tools that I can use, you know, and and maybe practice them while I'm an IOP or a PHP. Totally, yeah. Even if there's a few, or what can they kind of tell their parents? Because most kids leave and like don't want to talk about their day, just like kids in school, you know. But how do you kind of explain to your parents what you're learning in a program? So so that's kind of what when we say skills, and then. Most days we also offer experiential therapy. So that's a kind of more hands-on, you know, as you say, fun way to kind of discuss the skill again, but then do something with, with some movement or some art to kind of mm. beef up that idea as well. So currently we have a person doing a kind of improv activities with kids, kind of taking some of the tenets of improv and then folding in some of the therapeutic techniques as well. So, so it can kind of be a little bit more fun. We tend to do it towards the end of the day. Um, and it's a little bit of a lighter kind of mood lifter um, where you're still focusing on a therapeutic technique, but you're also doing something that feels a little bit like fun. Yeah. Yeah. And something active. Yeah. That sounds a lot. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. So do you also then for both IOP and PHP, mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned before family therapy, is that something mm -hmm. that's like a core pillar of, of, you know, this, these type of programming? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say most programs, and, and for us, certainly, uh, it's mandatory. Most teenagers don't love hearing that when we see them, but <clears throat> it's mandatory. What it looks like can vary, but we typically say you got to be doing family therapy at least once a week. <clears throat> and we offer, uh, everybody has one family therapist assigned to them. So 
meeting with your your caregivers, uh, your parents, whoever is involved in your life from, from a parental perspective and working on whatever goals make sense. So for plenty of families, mm-hmm. it's really reinforcing uh, support at home. Oftentimes it's helping kids apply the skills that they're they're learning in program. How do you communicate about your, your mood? How do you kind of let parents know if you're maybe not feeling safe or you're having acute symptoms? Um, and obviously if there's more you know, intense family dynamics, tapping at those, but typically at the PHP or IOP level, you're not doing like intense family therapy that you might imagine in an outpatient setting where you're getting into really, you know, complicated dynamics, much more, uh, Mm -hmm. your kid goes home and closes the door and you're not sure if they're safe or not, or what their mood is. How do you help that kid communicate a little bit more about what's going on? Do you, do you find that, that there is pushback from parents to do family therapy? Like, do you find that what, what I, do you I typically say, see? No, not often. I mean, I think schedules are always hard for parents. And I think plenty of parents come in with varied experiences of family therapy historically. So I think oftentimes people aren't mm. like excited because it can be hard. But I would say most parents I, I've interacted with and I have been in, a, in, in PHP IOP for about 10 years are, are pretty excited to be talking to a professional to, to get at mm-hmm. least a little bit of extra ideas. You know, I find myself sometimes saying things that to me sound, I'm almost like embarrassed I'm giving this advice because I'm like, oh, this sounds simple. But then oftentimes as a parent with a kid going through something, like they, they, they are having a hard time coming up with ideas. So they'll take, you know, mm-hmm. many, many ideas and are very appreciative. And oftentimes, you know, therapeutic ideas aren't that complicated, but they can be hard to put into play. So having mm-hmm. extra support to help you do that is huge. Um, so no, I, I, I think it's very rare that I see a parent, you know, not enthusiastic to be doing this. Kids, on the other hand, are often, you know, they don't necessarily want to be with their parents talking about this stuff, but but right. parents often, they're very, very glad to be doing it. <clears throat> no, I think that's wonderful. I think it is a, a huge support for parents and a huge, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, just a uh, feedback source of like, what do we do and how do we, how, right? Because I mean, like, I think about this, I'm a parent as, as well as, you know, no not just a psychologist, but also a parent. I mean, I was not given a a handbook of how to deal with my children, you know what I mean, when they were born. Like, yes, I had like what to expect when you're expecting, but after that, you're kind of on your own and you're just figuring it out. And I think it's so difficult to, you know, when something's going wrong, to not have the tools or the, the people to help guide you. And it sounds like that's what you're doing with family therapy. It's like, we are supporting, we are here to give more information. Mm -hmm. We're here to kind of a safety plan. Because obviously, there's a there's a reason why you know your kiddo's here, and so we have to figure out what's the best way to to manage that when he's they're not there, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. What do you feel like? I know that you said reasons why people would go to IOP and PHP, but what are some of the mm-hmm. top like? Let's say I don't want to maybe diagnoses. I'm not a fan of diagnoses. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I, I no. use them obviously, right? But like, what are some of the reasons why like someone's like, okay, I really this is what's a common diagnosis to come in. Um, like the one I think off the top of my head, maybe school refuser or something, but mm-hmm. is that, is that, is that a common one? Are there other ones? Yeah. 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 School refusal is definitely something we see a fair amount of. Um, and, you know, generally that could be missing full days of school, leaving class frequently because of anxiety, not going to your classes on time, spending, you know, excessive amount of time in a counselor's office. So we see a lot of kids with really strong anxiety, um, manifesting in that and in plenty of, you know, parents who have tried every trick they know how to get a kid out of bed and get to school. Um, you know, we see, and in most PHPs or IOPs do kids who struggle with, uh, self-injurious behavior that's not suicidal. Um, so non-suicidal self-injury, 
Um, and then uh, persistent suicidal ideation or, or other kind of concerns with suicidal ideation are often um, referring concerns as well. Um, and uh, broadly speaking, diagnosis-wise, you know, same as you, I, I don't find myself using diagnostic language frequently with parents or mm -hmm. kids. You know, mm -hmm. I think broadly speaking, people talk about depression and anxiety. And for us, for sure, mood and anxiety disorders, broadly speaking, are the primary diagnosis we see coming in. Mm -hmm. um, so generalized anxiety, we see a fair amount of obsessive compulsive disorder, social anxiety disorder, things like that. Um, and, and typically the tipping point for the partial day program versus the after school program is going to be, you know, safety or functional impairment. So for adolescents, again, that's not going to school. Um, mm -hmm. So if those things are compromised, it often makes more sense to look at a partial versus if, if they're not, IOP might make more sense. That makes a lot of sense. It, it really does. And I, we, I just interviewed somebody uh, that discussed self-injurious behavior. And it was one of those where I think it was a really important topic. I hope if you don't mind, can you talk us a little, a little bit about what, what you define that to be? Sorry, you did the, oh, the 3D thing I where I, I lost you just for, yeah, no, I did okay. that weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. We're not a professional team here, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but I was asking was I had just interviewed mm -hmm. somebody about self-injurious behavior, non-suicidal mm -hmm. behavior. Do you mind talking yeah. a little bit about what that looks like versus, you know, because I think it's scary. That in itself is another thing that's very scary yeah. to parents. Like what's the difference between that? And then, you know, uh, somebody actually is very harmful to themselves. And then how mm -hmm. do I discern that? Can you, can you discuss that? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I think parents are often uh, obviously very alarmed if they see their, their child injuring themselves deliberately. And, you know, for us and, and for, for therapists in this kind of setting, you know, what you're looking at is what's the intent behind the behavior. Um, and, and say adolescents plenty of the time don't necessarily have a, have a strong way of explaining like why they self-injure. Um, mm -hmm. but, but typically able to articulate there is no intention to end my life with this behavior. And sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, that's easier to assess if you're getting a sense of like, you know, where on their body they might be self-injuring or how they might be doing that or the implement they're using. Um, but, you know, kind of skilled assessors can get a sense of, you know, is this being done with the intention to end a life or is this being done for some other reason? And kids will describe, you know, I, I feel numb and this is a way to bring some sort of, you know, relief to that numbness um, or, you know, it's, it's a behavior that I find brings me out of some other undesirable emotional state. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I think one of the trickier pieces of that behavior, too, is helping the child and then and the family understand, despite the fact that it's 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 unsafe, um, it is in the current state serving some sort of function. We, we typically mm -hmm. identify it as, you know, maladaptive coping. It, it is unhealthy, you know, hurting yourself is, is ultimately going to be unhealthy, but it is serving some function in the moment. So how do we teach other skills or other techniques to, to decrease the likelihood it happens again, um, mm -hmm. gets to be really important. Well, yeah, I think that's amazing because I think that a lot of people do need to know that difference mm -hmm. between the two, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, this current pandemic, I mean, I don't even know where we are in the pandemic at this point, but I'm yeah. just saying like, somewhere. Thinking like, yeah, somewhere in there, hopefully towards the end of it. <clears throat> um, but but, you know, so I'm thinking back to March 2022, maybe like, yeah. let's say a, a, a few months ago. Did you see an uptick, an uptick, uh, sorry, an uptick in referrals and more people, young people struggling? Or was it just kind of like, uh, this is this the same as, as it always, always is? You know, it's tough. I, I'd say I keep thinking about that because um, it, currently, like this year, no, we're a little like if I looked at like our population last year, 
we're actually a little bit quieter than we were a couple years ago, not by like any, any large number or anything. Um, mm -hmm. But as you were saying, where are we in this pandemic? I, I feel like each year has been so different. Um, mm -hmm. For sure, we have heard like countless stories about the stress of the pandemic and then, you know, the social isolation and, and, you know, academic neglect or whatever else happens when you're stuck at home doing e-learning and all these, these problems. Um, and certainly seeing, you know, I'm sure you are many, many more folks going into outpatient care. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were seeing, you know, many, many kids coming. Um, and just, I, I remember actually right like March of 2020, I think it's the busiest I've ever seen our program. And then, you know, we, we shifted to virtual programming for a while and that sort of thing. Um, but then the second it felt safe to come back on site, we saw, I think, pretty much every single family or every kid uh, looking for services, wanting their kid to be back in person, because I think there mm -hmm. was a uh, real call for, for kids to be with each other and, and receive support. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think clearly the, the pandemic continues to, to impact people that way. I, I've seen a little bit this year of a sense of, as a parent myself, I think some eagerness to see your kid back in normal life a little bit too. So, you know, I, I yeah. wonder if there's also like, man, I don't want to see my kid go to, you know, a program or I don't want to see my kid go to therapy. I want him to go to basketball practice or whatever else. Um, right, but, right. you know, I think clearly seeing the need, I think um, as a person who refers to outpatient therapists a lot, I've seen longer and longer wait lists and, uh, you know, less and less availability um, than I ever did before, which tells me there's still a huge need. Um, and, and who knows what the next few years will bring and the lasting impacts and the rest of it. Um, I, I know seeing plenty of fallout from, you know, folks who like basically miss middle school and now they're expected to go to a huge high school and just be typically socializing and everything else and, you know, losing absolutely. your senior year of high school and all these other heartbreaking, ugh, it's awful. Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I, we just did parent conferences <laughs> and the teacher said, yeah. all the kids are two years behind. And I said, of course, they're all like emotionally stunted because they've been they've missed out on so many things. And and you're absolutely right as well. Um, outpatient. I can just say from that perspective. Um, yes, the wait lists are unbelievable. I mean, and so especially for child adolescent, you just don't mm -hmm. feel like there is. I, no. I, I mean, I never feel like there's enough. There's never enough. You know what I mean? It's, so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, Um so to take it to a different direction, mm -hmm. Adam, what do you like most about your work? You've been doing this, you know, being at, at, at Compass and working in this programming for a while, for a long time. What do you, what do you like the most about this work? I mean, the cliche answer that's probably true is, you know, the kids and working with them. Um, I, I think for me, it's always going to be like, I, I would imagine what most folks uh, who are in, in therapy what you get the most satisfaction from, even if like I know in my role now I do a lot more like staff management and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But I still keep a, a foothold and, and still keep a caseload. And like when I get kind of charged up and satisfied, it's usually in, in, in patient interactions and, you know, the hope of helping somebody a little bit. And in, in, in a PHP, like you're often not saying, boy, this person's really, you know, doing great or their symptoms are fully relieved. But, you know, if you're seeing a person who wasn't able to get to school at all. And then suddenly they're making it through a full day of school. You're feeling like you, you did a really good job or that kid did a really good job in, in, in their work. Um, and just drawn towards adolescence, just like literally the silly interactions you have to have with a teenager and making them laugh and finding yourself <laughs> just kind of goofing around is always, I think, where I get the most energy from still. 
That's wonderful. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, I love to ask people when we interview them is, you know, the biggest uh, myths or misconceptions that, that, that you see um, about the field of psychology itself. Like, for example, I go to any, any time I have like a cocktail party, um, are mm-hmm. you analyzing me? And I'm like, uh, you know, no, I'm not on the clock, you know, and no, that's weird. You know what I mean? But, but what, yeah. what, what's the biggest myth that you feel like about just psychology period that, that you've come across? You know, that's usually the answer I give too, because like that's that's absolutely it. I mean, I know like all my wife has a very large family, and people make jokes about like, oh, you probably think we're crazy or whatever else. It's like, <laughs> I, I I I don't know what it is, but like I, I, it's not a separation or a boundary. It's like I just like my brain moves away from psychology the second I'm out of the office, basically, and in most meaningful ways. And I am just not that interested in you know analyzing or looking at dynamics or patterns here. I just kind of want to talk to you about whatever it is. Um, and, and I don't know if it's a misconception, but I do think, especially working in a, in a, you know, a higher level of care or with a more acute population, I think that the assumption is you carry a lot of, you know, burden and, and emotional fallout and the rest of it. But at this stage, I, I don't. And I, I think that's pretty common uh, among folks who have done it for a while, um, that you're kind of acclimated to it. And, and especially mm-hmm. if you also have great colleagues, you have lots of support and you know that there's like a whole team of folks circling the wagons around, around your, your clients. So you're not, not worrying the same way you might've been in an earlier phase of your career. But um, I'm not someone who often goes to bed at night with, with worries about my, my, my work either, um, which I think plenty of people think therapists are kind of tortured that way. And then I haven't found that to be true. You know, I agree with you. I think I'm, I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, people do ask me about that a lot, like how stressful it is. And I'm like, it's not because, you know, A, we had tons of years of supervision, you know, and, yeah, and talking yeah. through a lot of these things and checking your own emotional blind spots and, you know, all that stuff that, you know, the, the transference that you might have with clients mm-hmm. and things like that. But you're absolutely right. It's it's almost as not, I don't want to say desensitized. I never want to be desensitized to, uh, you know, a human experience, you know, but right. it, but it, it doesn't get to that level where I'm not sleeping eight hours a night, you know. Um, it, no, it's I, I tend you know? to always... Yeah, I, I'm like my experience has always been in sort of a job as a job, and and like you know my wife does you know more businessy things, and I hear her quote like contracts and deals, and like oh that sounds like a lot of money. You're in charge of that sounds scary. I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that would keep me up at night. Um, I, I think many people once once you've done it a while, hopefully you have a way of, of coping, you get acclimated right? to what. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the scariest job would be an ER doctor because you never know what's happening. And and I I have friends that are ER doctors, and they're like, oh no, it's fine. And I was like, well, I mean, I guess everybody gets used to it, right? To whatever mm-hmm. it is that you're doing. So, um, for sure. You know, just before we wrap up, I want to know what would you like to, um, you know, listeners to know about demystifying therapy? I mean, that's the whole purpose of why Jennifer mm-hmm. uh, and I started this podcast was because, like you were talking about the pandemic, so many people in March 2020 decided, wow, I'm lonely, stressed, sad, or I really want to fix that thing that I always put off and now I'm home and mm-hmm. they're offering Zoom, so I might as well do this. And so people started seeking out therapy, but then we're scared of, well, wait a minute, what is, what am I doing here? And so that's the whole premise is we want to teach people, this is what you can do, you know, and this is what you can see and this is what happens and this is what you talk about. So if, if there was one thing that you could, you know, help demystify therapy and that process, what would that be? Well, I mean, I think I would probably say some version of, you know, you can make it whatever you want for yourself, right? I think, you know, as, as you said, I think hopefully more and more people are, are, are open to it. I find myself 
casually mentioning, oh, I was talking to my therapist the other day to people I wouldn't have thought I would have said that to a couple of years ago. I think most therapists mm-hmm. I know are seeing a therapist and might not mention it to my dad as quickly, but like, that's okay. And, <laughs> and, um, I, I think, generation, you know, if, they'll figure it out soon. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I think, you know, it, it can be as complicated or as, as uncomplicated as you want it to be. And, and you can also fire a therapist if you don't want to see them. So like, I think, yes. you know, if you've got a few things you want to work on and, and like the worst case scenario, it doesn't work. I, I often find myself describing it like a gym membership, if you can afford it, you know, the, the worst case scenario is you don't go and don't get any, better. Um, and you know, um, you can, you know, again, address however serious an issue you want to. And there's also plenty of stuff that they're like, it's just okay to not be okay, which is super cliche to say, but it's very true. And, and, you know, these days, especially there's wait less a mile long for every therapist in Chicago, you know, clearly you're not alone in this. Um, right. Yeah. Right. I I mean, I work in a building full of therapists and I, I always mm-hmm. tell people we are not just here for fun. I mean, like, I mean, it's, it's work and we're busy and it's, this whole building is full of us because there's people come to see us, you know what I mean? And so then they're like, Oh, Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of people mm-hmm. go to therapy. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time. I, I thank you so much for coming on. Um, I hope that, that this was helpful to people listening and, I know that IOP and PHP has been a really interesting topic. So I really appreciate you being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. All right. And for more information on Adam and his work, you can contact compasshealthcenter.net. And thank you for listening. And as always, subscribe to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy, But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast. Everywhere you listen to good podcasts and give us your five-star review. Follow us on Instagram at therapy underscore podcast underscore for any updates, additional information, and message of topics and questions you always want to know, but we're too afraid to ask. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to good podcasts and keep up with episode updates on Instagram. Follow us at therapy underscore podcast underscore. You can send us messages on topics you'd like to hear or anything that comes to mind. Bye for now.